0: Welcome to the Signal, a podcast presented to you by Third Bridge, the world's leading investment research provider, exploring how some of the globe's most investable industries are facing upheaval. My name is Catherine Ford, and I'm a journalist with a 20-year track record of reporting on a wide range of financial topics, such as capital markets developments and M&A. In this episode of the Signal, we are going to give you an overview and an outlook on the aviation industry. Joining me today are Peter McNally, Third Bridges Global Sector Lead for Industrials, Materials and Energy, and Ernest Airvey, President and CEO of Air Insight Group, a leading consulting firm specializing in economic and market analysis for the aviation, aerospace and air transport sectors. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to having our conversation, but I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners first so they can get an understanding of how you fit into this conversation. Ernie, maybe you could tell us first of all about yourself and your background.
1: Uh, sure. I've, I'm currently uh, president and CEO of Air Insight, a company I co-founded uh, back in uh, 2009. Prior to that, I had spent uh, a, a career in consulting. Uh, I led the, uh, the airlines and aviation unit at Arthur D. Little, uh, was a director in their, uh, their consulting operations later went to Battelle Memorial Institute, uh, and then founded my own firm back in 1991. So I, uh, I've been around the industry for more years than I'd like to admit, and specialize really in, uh, in strategy and market uh, issues.
0: Fantastic. So a real veteran in the industry, which will come in incredibly handy over the next 45 minutes as we chat about the aviation space. Uh, but before we dive in, Peter, tell our listeners about yourself.
2: Sure. So before joining Thurbridge, I spent a year at Deutsche Bank, but prior to that, uh, a few decades on the buy side. So I worked at uh, several fund managers, including uh, Kingdom Capital, uh, the Galleon Group, ING, and Bankers Trust. And even at one point along the way, helped manage a fund for the Patel Memorial Institute. So, you know, and uh, as you said, today, I'm the global sector lead for industrial materials and energy, as well as I'm also the Global Head of Sector Analysis.
0: Fantastic, thank you so much to both of you for joining us today to talk about the aviation industry. Now, Peter, can you sort of set the scene for us a little and talk to us with some facts and figures about the industry, some of the growth rates that we've experiencing and, and who the key players were in the entire industry?
2: Sure, I mean, you know, the, the decline that we saw in the pandemic was like nothing we had seen before. I mean, revenues down 90 percent, you know, passengers down similar numbers or, or maybe a little less. But the, um, you know, whether it was after 9-11, the financial crisis or any other type of event, it was like nothing, you know, we've seen. At least here in the U.S., we've now we've now recovered and, you know, are, are you know looking ahead. Other parts of the world, particularly Asia, not yet as Lockdowns still remain um you know part of life one of the things that uh has emerged in the us has been a bit of consolidation that we've seen there was a big fight over spirit airlines between JetBlue and and frontier but there was also the JetBlue american alliance um has changed the structure of you know of the industry but also like one factor that occurred despite this lapse particularly here you know in the us is nobody went bankrupt you know, it, it survived. Some of it was government funding. but Some of it was from our clients who provided you know plenty of capital to this industry to keep, keep it going. So that is something, you know, a major bankruptcy is something we, we, we've seen in a long time. Europe's a bit different, but that is a key thing to understand.
0: But you make a really interesting point there because the industry has had a, a huge amount of government support over the course of the pandemic. So my question to you is like, how much is there an artificial propping up of the industry and how much is there actually, there is value in the industry. And that is why despite the challenges of the pandemic, we have not actually seen those bankruptcies. So can you, can you sort of, Give us a gut feeling. Is this something where the ball has been kicked down the line and in a few years' time we will see those bankruptcies or is that not actually the case?
2: Well, the U.S. airlines couldn't wait to give that money back to the government because there's no free lunch. There were strings attached with, with those funds. So, you know, you could not cancel any routes as a result of taking you know taking those funds. You were limited in dividend payouts back to shareholders, you know, as a, as a result of that, you know. God forbid that some congressman who voted for those funds, you know, can't get a flight back to Washington uh, to vote on future legislation. Right. So those those restrictions were limited. And, you know, as we started to, you know, to emerge, government funding was one part of it. But capital markets provided far more money to these airlines in the United States than the government ever did.
0: So a big vote of confidence for the industry from you then, Peter. Hopefully, I, I would hope, given the position that you're in, you want to be confident about it.
2: And being optimistic is more fun than being pessimistic. <laughs> but but the same as, you know, a certain amount of reality does have to set in. Like, this has happened in, in the past. This is an industry that is very dependent on labor, has high fixed costs. You know, it's prone to cyclical demand. But, you know, we, we, we've we been at this for a century now. Yeah. Um, People are getting better at running airlines and not always making repeated, you know, repeated mistakes that have been done in the past.
0: Thank you very much. Ernie, I'd like to bring you in and, uh, and get you to talk to me about some of the key challenges that the industry is facing. We've heard about the growth rates that were very, very impressive. Were they sustained? Are they sustainable? What are the challenges that the industry is facing going forward?
1: I think there are a number of, of challenges uh, going forward. And to add to Peter's optimism, the uh, the fact that we've got 31 new airlines emerging in 26 different countries right now gives a sense that uh, that innovation is not done in the airline segment. People who have started airlines before, David Nealman with Breeze, who was formerly the founder of JetBlue, and uh, Azul in Brazil, uh, has started the new airline. There are quite a number of startups that are that are being exciting, but the challenges facing the industry, I think, are uh, are really uh, threefold one one is uh, shortages of, of labor and we've seen this in general in the economy and there's a particular pilot and mechanic shortage as uh, as some of the people left the industry during the pandemic and uh, replacing them is proving difficult uh, because because of their experience and uh, the second is uh, a, a challenge in getting airplanes the supply chain constraints that have hit boeing and airbus have made it difficult for them to to push out the airplanes as fast as they'd like to, and we're in a uh, we're in a regrowth environment. So people are bringing airplanes back into their fleets, trying to replace older aircraft with new aircraft where they can afford it for better efficiency and better environmental performance. Uh, so that's a problem, and of course, uh, traffic in Asia has not come back the same way it has in uh, North America and even uh, Western Europe. Uh, so we've got the constraints from, from the pandemic that have been hanging on in, uh, in China and other places, and we still haven't fully recovered uh, with the patchwork quilt type of, of uh, global, global recovery, if we look at it from, from that perspective. So those are the challenges.
0: Thank you very much, Ernest. If I can dig a little bit deeper on one of the challenges that you mentioned, because if we think about the labour shortages that you mentioned in relation to some of the challenges of the industry, my question, where have all these people gone and why haven't they come back? Because it was one thing to say, okay, fine, when we don't have the pilots during the pandemic when no planes are there, but the planes are flying again now. So where are the pilots? Where are the mechanics? Where are those baggage handlers? Where have they gone? What is so much more attractive than coming back to the job that they already had? Well,
1: I think for some of them, uh, and what, uh, what airlines did in terms of uh, cutting staff was to take the uh, many of the oldest and most expensive people and offer them buyouts to retire. And many, many did, but we don't have the, the pipeline coming in. And in the U.S., we have a particular problem in that we require 1,500 flight hours for an air transport pilot certificate. Uh, whereas other countries are back at the 250 level that we used to have here before a, before a regional airline accident caused a, uh, an overreaction in Congress and new legislative requirements. Uh, so these people people that want to become pilots have to spend a lot of money in training. And this can, this can be in the uh, $100,000 to $200,000 level of just building your time to, to become a pilot. And often it's the wrong type of, of training because you can develop some bad habits flying a small Cessna that uh, won't won't do you very well in the uh, in the cockpit of a jet. Uh, so uh, we're not sure we've got it right yet from a regulatory perspective. But Congress appears unwilling to to change and is permanently gridlocked in many regards. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a shortage that uh, that we need to work on as an industry. And there are a number of programs that are coming up to. To expand opportunities and to and to pay for training, but essentially uh, the regional airlines are being hurt because they're the the building ground for uh, for the major airlines. People move up from a regional to a major and then move up within the uh, size of aircraft as they uh, as they move in their career, and the regional airlines is is where the shortfall really occurs, and that's uh, regional airlines account for about forty percent of the flights in the U.S. Which is an extremely high number when compared with the rest of the world. So the shortfall at the regionals is uh, is critical, and some carriers have been forced to to cancel flights and curtail uh, curtail some operations.
2: I was going to add to that, uh, Catherine, Ernie. You know the 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 pilot shortage in a certain was a decade in the making. You know, one of our experts has pointed out that uh, a key source had been the military in in the United States, and. About a decade ago, the military started paying people more money you know, to keep them around instead of going to a commercial airline. But at the same time, the emergence of unmanned missions is that you could spend a number of years in the Air Force and not have enough hours to go right to a commercial airline. You needed additional training because manning an aircraft, even you know, in the military, is expensive too. So it has compounded this situation. And as Ernie said, you know, the regionals are the ones that are really suffering.
0: We've taken a real deep dive already into some of the challenges that the industry is facing. Let's just take a step back and talk about sort of the challenges that the pandemic posed. Talk to me about the effects that the pandemic had on the industry overall, Peter.
2: Well, it was a massive collapse in in, in revenues. Uh, I and mean, there are all these people, right? People are the biggest expense, you know, for these airlines, so... You know, as, as we talked about, the, the oldest, most experienced and most expensive people were let go or, or convinced to be, you know, let go through, through a retirement package. And, you know, like maybe different from some other industries, demand didn't come back right away. You know, we had seen things, let's say like e-commerce, as an example, turned out to be like a boom as people stayed home and ordered goods to be delivered. That, that accelerated because of government restrictions and until people were vaccinated, really limited the you know, the demand. But you know one thing that we did see is that as soon as people did get vaccinated, they wanted to fly, and then there weren't enough people to handle all of the demand that came back, right? Particularly as people who got vaccinated in the spring of 2021. And that's where we first started to see the struggles with labor. You know, and the the lack of revenue also led to some, you know, a lot of curtailments in investments and you know, some of these operational problems have, have started to you know emerge as well. So it was sort of a slow recovery, then an accelerating recovery, and then being limited by these factors that we've talked about before.
0: One of the challenges I think must also be that while the return to flying has been strong in the US and in Western Europe, as you mentioned both of you earlier. We haven't seen that recovery in Asia because Asia still suffers from frequent and at times not necessarily comprehensible lockdowns of specific areas, specific countries. How difficult does it make planning for the airline industry when they don't know which airports they can actually service and which they can't? How do they, how do they go about planning for that? Ernie, maybe you can go on that one first
1: well i think the uh, the planning for that is uh it's it's basically done uh done well in advance uh because you've got to uh, to sell tickets for a period of time uh before beforehand and uh while they like to restore routes as as soon as as soon as possible uh the uncertainty and the ability to count the uh, ability for countries to just shut down areas you know shutting down shanghai would uh would cancel a number of flights in, in into and out of China. Uh, China's been very restrictive with their with their uh, zero COVID policy, so that's a almost a separate market that has uh, effectively disappeared uh, for a lot of international flights, and is just now beginning to uh, to come back. Uh, but Asia is down probably forty five percent from where where it was, and is still not. Uh, not coming back uh whereas north america and europe are in the uh, 90 and uh, 84 percent levels uh, respectively so we we've got the uh the continuing issue of uncertainty there so airlines are simply not planning and it's it also takes a while to bring an airplane back from the desert this is not something you you fly it out of the desert you've got maintenance to perform you've got checks to perform you need the mechanics to to check over the airplane uh there are a number of things that, uh, if you store an airplane long long term, have to be replaced. Uh, for example, rubber seals that might deteriorate in the desert heat uh, have to be inspected and replaced. It's not easy bringing an aircraft in and out of the desert, so that's uh, that's something that the airlines are particularly concerned about.
0: If we look towards Asia what are your expectations Peter going forward when do we think that things will normalize and traffic between Asia and say the US or Asia and Europe will will recover to the levels that we saw pre-pandemic
2: Well I think it's the you know, the answer to the question is in a bigger issue that we you know are, are struggling with or, or or trying to explore further is that government intervention in industries I'm not just talking about about airlines like we're seeing it in European energy markets and and you know electric power uh, nationalizations that have occurred in you know in other areas in these strategic industries. It makes it more difficult you know, as we were talking about you know for for planning. I think there is some encouragement maybe this over the course of last month that China is indeed potentially emerging from some of these you know lockdowns when. We know the prison. she's going to be around for another another five years. But, you know, the policies there make it very difficult to forecast exactly when things are, you know, are, are going to you know, improve. But we've seen this week, you know, some of the the, the um, quarantine restrictions, you know, have been eased and the number of tests. And it seems to be getting incrementally better. But, you know, I think we see this in every country. Government policy can change pretty quickly. You know, and and it is reacting to events in real time. You know, not just there, but you know,
1: everywhere. If I can add to that, we don't see a full recovery in Asia till twenty twenty five, and uh, one of the uh, additional factors that's impacting the Europe to Asia flight routes is the Ukraine war because Russia is the uh, the main gateway over which people fly, and uh, if you remember during the uh, the two thousand and four era when the the Malaysian aircraft was shot down over Ukraine. That's one of the flight routes, uh, main flight routes to Asia. Uh, so with that down, European airlines will have to fly further south down toward, uh, towards Dubai and, uh, and uh, up up that way and uh, add a couple of hours to a flight, which makes it uh, more costly. Uh, that raises raises prices and de- depresses, depresses demand. Hi. My name is Erica Gomez, and I'm an analyst at Thurbridge. If you'd like to know more about the subjects discussed today, our forum team have over 30,000 company and sector transcripts available on demand. They offer extensive insight into Spirit Airlines and North America's regional airlines, airline pilot dynamics, and much more. Each transcript features a one-hour interview between an unbiased analyst like me and an industry executive. You can find this content at
2: signal.thurbridge.com. And now, back to the podcast.
0: Now, both of you have touched on the role that governments are playing in the space. Can we take a step back from sort of the, the the financial support that the industry was getting throughout the pandemic and just generally talk about government involvement in the sector? Peter, you spoke about that we've seen government involvement not just in the airline space. We've seen greater government involvement in a variety of industries. Can you give us your take on that that we're seeing at the moment, but also your expectations for the future?
2: Well, I mean, like government has always been involved um, in in this industry, I think, for two reasons. One, it's critical, right, yeah, transportation, and two, the other aspect is safety, right? And um, you know, the the seven thirty seven crashes that Boeing had prior to the pandemic were really, really important. Now, and that has limited the recovery in, you know, in the industry broadly is like there's a lot more scrutiny going on with Boeing and it is flowing back through the supply chain in in lots of different ways. I don't think that this is going to change anytime soon that you're just going to have to deal with governments of all kinds.
0: Now, one of the things as we were preparing for this podcast, we were looking at sort of where there's been uncertainty, how things have changed over the course of the pandemic. And business travel is definitely one of those things that hasn't come back the way that, I guess, leisure travel has come back. Peter, talk to us why you feel that has happened and what your expectations are with regards to the future.
2: Well, look, as I said earlier, it's, uh, it's more fun to be optimistic, but there's a certain part of business travel that is just not going to come back. The, the idea that half of it uh, we'll never come back as I think Bill Gates had postulated you know, a couple of years ago. I don't believe that, but you know there's a certain amount of like internal business travel that we would say just it, it's not efficient to fly to another city. Quick meetings can be done more efficiently with Zoom and GMeets and other types of technology, just like we're doing this, you know here today. We don't have to gather in, in, in the same spot, but there is. You know, a, a fundamental underlying demand for travel that exists not just in, in business, but also, you know, on the leisure side. So, um, you know, personal relationships do matter. And we've seen those kinds of things emerge pretty quickly in, in lots of industries that business travel is. You know, is
1: if I could add to that, I think the uh, the one day business trip is dying. But the road warriors who are out there visiting a round robin of their customers in the sales function are still going to be the same way. But the quick trip in and out to, uh, to speak with someone, particularly someone who you know or have a relationship with, is going to be replaced by, by Zoom. And I think that's the, uh, the big difference we're seeing right now is the one-day business trip is dead.
0: And some might argue that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, talk to me about the winners and losers in this space as we explore sort of the current status quo. Peter, winners on your front. Well,
2: we've seen low-cost airlines in the United States. Um, you know, to Ernie's earlier point about the number of IPOs, um, these are these are disruptors, you know, and, and the, the the battle for spirit is it was was fascinating on on a lot of levels. It's like, you know. Who who really thought that you know the airline that could jam more people into into a plane than anyone else would be the target, you know, of so much you know industry interest in because it really has been disruptive. The other thing that you know we have we have found again is there's this fundamental underlying demand for travel, particularly among consumers. We're not really sure how it's you know quite going to end, but I thought one of the great stats that one of our experts had given to us is pre-9-11, the passenger travel revenues were about 90 to 100 basis points of GDP. And then after 9-11, it dropped to 60 to 70 basis points because travel became a hassle, particularly on short trips with all the security stuff that you have to go through. You know, but we're seeing post-pandemic that people really do want to get out there, you know, and and, and do things. And, you know, while the, the business travel area is uncertain... You know, we saw how quickly people got vaccinated and, and got on planes, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. Really, the only thing that seems to be stopping leisure travel is getting the number of people and the number of aircraft, you know, out there. So we think that these low-cost airlines in the United States are, are pretty interesting. They've been able to raise capital. It's not just government, you know, it's our clients, you know, investors uh, who have provided a backstop to continually develop businesses. That are successful companies, do, you know, do need to adapt over time, you know. But but we've seen how companies like JetBlue and Southwest, in particular, were not the lowest cost uh, providers, and you know that that you could find. There's kind of this mid-tier, you know, that is that has emerged. So that's what we see as among the winners.
0: Fantastic, Ernie, talk to us about the losers in the space.
1: The uh, the losers in the space, I would say. Uh, as much as I hate to say it, I think Boeing is uh, one of the losers in the space because they've uh, the Max crisis has uh, cost them cost them dearly. Uh, the seven eighty seven was a debacle in its development, and really, since the McDonnell Douglas merger, Boeing has been unable to deliver a new airplane on time and on budget, and that's their business is delivering new airplanes on time and on budget. So they've uh, They've had their difficulties internally in uh, in managing and developing new airplanes, perhaps as a result of cutting too many of the of the engineers who uh, who knew all the secrets of building airplanes. But uh, they've got to, they've got to rebuild and, and restructure. And uh, right now they're having difficulties. the uh, The seven eight seven was grounded for 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 more than a year. They have quality issues. Uh, the FAA has taken back some of the. Uh, the uh, regulatory responsibility under their production certificate, and is actually was inspecting each aircraft individually before they were allowed to be released, rather than use the Boeing quality system. So, Boeing has a lot of work to do, and uh, with their announcement that they're not building a new airplane in the near future, uh, from D- from Dave Calhoun, uh, they've uh, they've got themselves at a potential competitive disadvantage. To uh, To Airbus for the next decade.
0: Thank you very much there. Now, we want to make the content of this podcast as sort of investable for our listeners as possible and give them real insight into the industry. We've spoken about some of the challenges that the industry is facing, shortage of labour, um getting planes, so the actual hardware there. We've talked about um the traffic into Asia being very uncertain at the moment. Talk to me about things like the recession, the impact that that will have, the environmental concerns that people have when it comes to flying ESG and the overall uncertainty that the sector is facing. How should investors approach this, these considerations when they look at the aviation space, Peter?
2: Well, the, you know, the recession certainly is one, but we, we would put the, the Western Aviation industry in a category of unmet demand. Um, that there has been there have been restraints in meeting all the people who who want to fly. Um, pricing, you know, like is as frankly kept up. Not not quite to the degree that that costs have, but people do want to travel. There's a case that you know could be made that a recession might not be as bad in the past for the airline industry, you know, given those factors. If if supply chains can ease and they can get more aircraft and the availability of labor from other industries um, transitions over to, uh, you know, to, to the airlines. But, you know, the, the economy is always something that uh, has to be, you know, has to be considered, you know, with, the, with this industry. The environmental concerns, I, I think, is less of an issue, I would say, in the US than in Europe. Um, and even in Europe, it varies by country. Um, so it, it, it depends on what value I think that people really feel like they're, they're getting for it. I mean, electric cars existed in this country for a long time before the Tesla came around. It was just that Tesla made a car that people really wanted to buy. You know, and, and while I we do think, you know, People do care about the environment. There's probably other ways to solve it rather than flight shaming people on commercial planes. You know, private aviation might be might be a different category, but in terms of what that impact is, in terms of the number of passengers that actually fly around, it's pretty small.
0: Ernie, talk to us about the opportunity the space provides to investors.
1: I think the opportunity it provides to investors... Uh, Particularly right now, the airline, the airline stocks got beaten up pretty badly uh, during, the, during the pandemic and, uh, and, and dropped considerably. And we, we're seeing demand come back. We're seeing profitability come back. We're seeing airlines repaying government loans. We've seen a, uh, uh, a great deal of savings during the pandemic uh, by individuals who simply, uh, because of, of lockdowns and restrictions, didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, they were able to save some money uh and now they're ready to spend that money and so the demand for travel is uh, is up particularly in uh, in the US and, and western europe it's it's there the question is uh can we supply uh, enough capacity to meet that demand and uh and that's part of the problem we have recovering from the pandemic overall is we don't have the capacity in many areas to meet the demand so the supply demand balance has gone uh toward the demand side, which means uh, we've got higher prices and inflation. That's impacting the ability to get airplanes. It's impacting the ability to uh, to get the airlines ramped up to the same level that they that they were pre-pandemic. We're getting close in the US. We're at uh, 90, 94 percent of traffic through September and uh, October. And we're looking at uh, even though we're looking at a shoulder season, we're, we're doing well. Uh, Europe is about 84% with the, uh, Euro forecast, uh, that was just issued a couple of weeks ago and now looking for a full recovery in 2025 instead of 2024 with the, uh, Ukraine war causing difficulties in Eastern Europe. But, uh, we're, we're looking at a, a pretty strong recovery.
0: Thank you very much. Now, when at the beginning of the conversation, I asked you to, to give me the key characteristics of the industry innovation came up. So I'd like to use that as sort of the springboard from which we explore what the industry might look like in 10 to 20 years. We've established that the industry wants to be carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, that is going to take a fair bit of innovation to get there. Talk to us when you sort of blue sky what the industry will look like Peter, what do you see?
2: Well, to uh, Ernie's point, you know, at, at the beginning about the efficiency, you know, of planes, the, the Model T got 22 miles per gallon. And you know, I think the, the average car in the United States today is only like in the mid-20s. So like, despite all that, so like the, the aviation industry is, you know, has done well. Look, the other interesting thing about, I think, particularly about this sector is the willingness to invest. In these things even through the pandemic and things like eVTOL so think of flying taxis hydrogen supersonic uh travel that like got capital you know through it but i think one area to watch that i do think has great potential to have an impact is sustainable aviation fuel or SAF uh, for sure and and i give that because like there's a track record of this. Like in, and, and we look at what's going on in renewable diesel, a, a, as an example. And it's a, simil, it's a similar product. And I would point you to a Finnish company called Neste. It's like, you know, they're going to do $25 billion in revenues this year, or euros, I guess it's about the, about the same thing. And they're the world's largest provider of renewable diesel. Like, it's, it's a real business. It's a real thing. It works. Um, trucks run on it in all kinds of countries and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the United States, we're seeing old crude oil refineries convert to produce renewable diesel, as well as some sustainable aviation fuel. So we think with that credibility is something that can happen. Uh, it's got to scale a long way though in order in order to get there. But um, to the point being that there's Um, a track record here that we can point to that can make a a difference in decarbonization.
0: When when you say they've got a long way to go, like how long?
2: Just the volumes that need to be produced of this stuff. I mean, like the the, the press releases are awesome about millions of gallons and stuff that they're going to like produce. And it, it sounds impressive. But when you think, look, I cover the oil industry too. You know, the oil industry is 100 million barrels per day, give or take. When you, you know, multiply that by 42 for, you know, 42 gallons in a barrel and divide by, you know, 365, like those millions of gallons per year, like they're not that impressive in the overall kind of liquid energy consumption, that, you know, that we are today. But it's, you got to start somewhere. These things do get, you know, gets blended in with traditional fuel, um, to start, but there is this willingness to invest, you know, and it, it gets our attention that like, hey, real companies are throwing real money at this, their own money. It's not just government money, you know, they're in throwing, and it. it's not, it's not some sideshow R&D experiment that might or might not work. That's how we think.
0: Thank you very much. Ernie, from your perspective, if you look ahead, where do you see the industry going?
1: i see uh, i see the industry going in uh, in different different directions based on the size of the aircraft uh with electrification starting with the smaller aircraft and moving uh moving upward over time uh, SA, SAF, as uh, as peter mentioned is the easiest solution but right now i think if we took all the Saf in the world and uh, and put it in airplanes we'd have uh you know a, a half of one percent of the uh, of the uh, of the capacity, so uh, it really really needs to scale up dramatically to to be effective. And the investment is coming to do that. I think the industry sees that as the easiest road to carbon neutrality, and uh, and something that has to be done as we as we look at electrification. But electrification of airplanes is is coming. Uh, we see uh, we see electric motors. We see. Uh, a number of the uh, the smaller innovative companies building uh, building aircraft. We've got uh, we've got nine seaters that are that are becoming electrified. We've got a number of technology uh, uh, companies that are that are coming forward. Uh, Pipistrel had the first certified electric airplane, the two seat trainer. Uh, they were acquired by Textron, which has a major uh, presence in everything from uh, from training aircraft to business jets. Uh, clearly, they saw something there that was valuable that they wanted to buy in terms of this technology. Uh, there are a number of smaller companies that are going to be uh, acquired by the big guys as we, as we look to the future. And many of them are involved in the, uh, in the urban air mobility process because there we're seeing electric motors and electrification as the, uh, as the fundamentals. Uh, companies like Embraer, which build uh, regional aircraft and commercial aircraft, have invested in uh, in this in the sector as well. And uh, that knowledge and the experience from building the smaller aircraft will lead to eventual uh, eventual applications of electric operations on uh, on larger aircraft, whether that be hydrogen powered or fuel cells. Or, or indeed, uh, solid-state batteries, as companies like Lighten are looking at for the future. Uh, So we've got a uh, a number of technological developments that are happening so rapidly, it's it's hard to keep track of them all. And uh, that's the that's the interesting part is that once a couple of these become successful, have a good track record, uh, they're going to they're going to be applied by the big by the big guys as we uh, as we as we grow the issue. The uh, the fundamental problem there is is weight, because weight is the enemy of aviation, the lighter the aircraft, the better. And uh, one of the things about fossil fuels is they burn up during flight. So as you as you go through the flight, uh, your aircraft becomes lighter and you become more efficient and can can extend that range. A battery weighs the same whether it's empty or full. Uh, so once you're once you're once you're there, you're there. And uh, getting over that hump is the technological challenge that we're looking at.
0: So both of you have mentioned a couple of players in the space. And my question now, just to wrap this this future gazing segment of the podcast up, is um, how many of the players that we see active at the moment, whether it's Aircraft manufacturers, whether it's OEM suppliers, whether it's actual airlines, will still be around. And how much is this going to be an industry where, in twenty years' time, we're going to be talking about businesses that don't even exist yet?
2: Well, there's, uh, you know, I, I always like to, say, you know, roll back ten or twenty years and think about all, all the airlines like that didn't exist or, or weren't even on like pe- people's, you know, radar. But I think the the thing that has impressed. Me so much since the start of the pandemic is the willingness of people to invest in the sector. I mean, I think of late 2020 when only you know there was only a, a vaccine had been discovered, but like wasn't available. And United, you know, is investing in air taxis. You know, EV tall capital was still very precious, and there's a few hundred of these EV tall companies that are out there today. How many of them, you know, are going to merge?
1: Maybe a couple.
2: Uh, you know, from that, but um, you know, it is an industry that is able to raise capital.
1: If I can add, I think we'll see consolidation as well. I was speaking with a, a CEO of one of the uh, one of the major uh, uh, aerospace companies, and their attitude is that uh, rather than invest in uh, in one of these uh, startups and uh, and get it at a low price, they'd rather wait have them sort themselves out and as leaders emerge, then they'll jump in and buy them perhaps 10 times more costly than what they uh, than what they could have done uh, today by buying someone who's smaller, but uh, letting the market work and uh, then coming in and jumping on the technologies. So I think we're going to see uh, uh, a lot of consolidation once some of these smaller companies come out. Uh, they're going to be acquired. And that's obviously an opportunity for, for shareholder value, but uh, predicting which is which is, is really the key.
0: Now, um, I'd like to wrap the podcast up by asking each of you to give me the, the one to watch in the space. And that might be a company, it might be a product, it might be a piece of technology, a development in the space. If you want our listeners to sort of come away and say like, okay, this is definitely the one to watch going forward. Peter, from your perspective...
2: One that we get a lot of interest in is Comac in China. And if they can really build a commercial aircraft uh, to compete with the likes of Boeing and Airbus and, and Embraer, it's a game changer because the biggest opportunity in the future is in Asia.
0: So watch that one. That one. Thank you very much. Ernie, you're one to watch.
1: I'm going to go in the business aviation sector and say uh, DESO Aviation. Uh, they've, uh, they're coming out with uh, two new aircraft uh, and I think they can regain a fair amount of market share because they're differentiated products with extra wide cabins with uh, similar capabilities to, uh, to other players. So they've got a differentiated product coming into the market over the next few years with two new models and I think they'll be quite successful.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much. Now, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. So I'd like to say a huge thank you to Ernie and Peter for sharing your experiences and your vast insight into the aviation space. And thank you to you listening to this episode of The Signal, presented to you by Third Bridge, the world's leading investment research provider. Join us again in a fortnight for the next episode. And in the meantime, please rate, review, and follow our podcast. Indeed, if you like it, tell a friend. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. And also on thirdbridge.com forward slash signal. From me, Catherine Ford, that's thank you very much. And until next time, goodbye.